0: A young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to The Hub on CGTN. I'm in Beijing. The sixth China International Import Expo is taking place in Shanghai with more Fortune Global 500 companies, industry leaders and overseas group exhibitors from the Chambers of Commerce and Associations attending than previous years. An important part of the CIE is the Hongqiao International Economic Forum, that is an international public good whose central theme this year is global openness. My guest today is Christopher Pissarevich. He's a Nobel Memorial Prize laureate in economic sciences and Regius Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics. He's attending the forum via video link. So, Professor Pissarevich, uh, welcome to the hub on CGTN. Understand uh, that you're attending the sixth Hongqiao Forum which is part of the CIIE, a very important Chinese initiative, buying more goods and services from the rest of the world. Uh, This year's year's theme is uh, global openness, actually. What do you anticipate from this year's Hongqiao Forum?
1: My best hope for this year is for uh, uh, participants, uh, other uh, countries that I know are always present, to realize that openness to the world, at least in economic terms, is beneficial for everybody. Because recently we've been observing a reversal of the globalization trend. Imports and exports are are falling. Uh, The uh, uh, index of openness that uh, is uh, launched every year at the uh, Shanghai Economic um, Forum is showing a decline. That's not very good for uh, global economic development. So my best hope is for everyone to go away and say we must make more effort to achieve more openness.
0: And do you think that could happen uh, under the circumstances, uh, given uh, the political realities uh, at home for many yeah. countries and also the global geopolitical landscape?
1: I'm not as sure about that as I was about what I want to see. Unfortunately, I don't see it happening at present, at least not immediately. We managed to get into a situation where it's very difficult to see a very quick return to friendly relations where everyone is collaborating. Mm-hmm and working for, um, for for the good of humanity, like uh, we used to some time before. My, my best hope, actually, to be completely realistic, or, or rather I should say my realistic hope, is not that suddenly leaders walk away and say, that's it, from tomorrow we're going to change, but rather leaders walk away and say, no, no, we mustn't allow this uh, geopolitical situation to get even worse or even stay where it is, we must start making an effort, maybe in small steps, to go back to, um, to a more collaborative attitude.
0: IMF recently predicts that uh, decoupling and disruption of industrial and supply chains may cost the global GDP some 5%, which is significant. And under the concept of open development, what kind of mechanism do you think can be adopted to reduce trade frictions and protectionism and to really stabilize the global industrial chain?
1: I quite believe that actually because what's happened was that before manufacturers multinationals uh, generally uh, people in business were looking at the global economy you know they were looking at different countries and, and thinking which country will have the best comparative advantage for what I want to do uh, you know how can I make sure I locate in such and such a country because given what I'm producing and given the institutional structure of that country is the best for my company Now, they're not thinking like that. And I think that's what the IMF is getting at. What they're thinking is if I do that, am I going to be surprised by any policy changes? Am I going to have any disruptions because of um, political considerations? Or even, you know, as in the pandemic, am I going to see lockdowns that surprise me and um, get disruption? And as a result, and especially using the new technologies that um, make it more possible to do that, they're bringing production back home. It's called onshoring instead of offshoring. And even if they don't, they're looking at. Um, and people have been talking where, about
0: French shoring recently, you know, trusting your allies and, and, and exactly, partners that's and, and ideologically close well, friends.
1: <laughs> well, that, you, you stole my word. I was <laughs> going to say, oh, well, there is French shoring in the sense that, uh, you know, for example, an American might say, well, do I need to go to Asia or should I just look at Mexico very carefully first because they're part of NAFTA. A European, you know, a German might say, well, could I offshore in Romania or Bulgaria, which uh, still have low wages, are the countries that are uh, countries that maybe have some of the benefits of some of the Asian countries I was going to, because I know they're within the European Union and I shouldn't expect any surprises. Once you think like that, you start restricting the, your domain, you are restricting all the possibilities that are open to you. And inevitably, the outcome will be worse than it was before.
0: How do you feel about de-risking that is becoming an organizing principle for some parts of the world to organize their trade policies and industrial policies?
1: Well, that's part of what we, we've just been saying, that there are risks that they don't want to face. So they're thinking, how could I go in a safer course? If you like, even if it doesn't give me maximum return, and when the IMF is talking about world GDP, what they're talking about is there is a maximum potential that will benefit uh, poorer countries, and I mean, very you know, the, the rich countries. Even five up, five percent up, five percent down will not make that much difference to them. Obviously, five percent up is better, but but, but and and then they, they're thinking no, you know, just to reduce a, any risks that. Uh, they see in their um, global activities, they're sacrificing efficiency.
0: Right. You served as president of the European Economic Association, and in 2024, you will become the president of the Royal Economic Society. Um, what's your hopes and suggestions for China EU relations going forward, especially on the economic front? Uh, will trade ties between leading economies in the global, um, you know, in those regions be further affected by growing geopolitical tensions?
1: Well, China, your relations, uh, I mean, I hope they continue improving. Ever since the 1980s, when uh, China opened up and became a key player in in globalization, European countries have benefited a lot. I mean, to give you two examples, Germany benefited a lot, became a major exporter of heavy engineering, luxury manufacturing products, vehicles, and so on. To China, it benefited from locating in, in China and so on. Greece, which is uh, my cultural origins, if you like, I am awesome. of Greek origins, has has benefited a lot by Chinese investment in, in the port of Athens, famous port that goes back at least two and a half thousand years and, and it was declining. Chinese came in. It works very efficiently now. We're benefiting from that. I'm sure China is benefiting a lot from European technology that the multinationals that are locating, they're taking. I'm a regular participant at the China Development Forum, where the, the the very top of European business is present and we talk about it and there is discussion and there is a lot of interest from uh, Chinese uh, leaders. I don't like it when I see budding conflicts arising, for example, in the case of electric vehicles. I can see the European point and I can see what they're saying. And I can also see what China is doing to promote its uh, electric vehicle manufacturing Europe. Governments are not allowed to uh, subsidize industry because they want to have an open competition amongst all the members. Now, here we have two major world economies, the, the single European economy, and China following different principles in developing a new industry. Where should they start fighting and arguing and putting trade barriers against each other? No, they should sit down with an open mind, see how can they can reach a compromise and how they can progress forward, because both of us will benefit if we do that. So I'm hoping, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, I trust that uh, people will see the reality of of, of where we are and what benefits there are and and will move forward, but as we said before, you cannot be 100% sure about these things when geopolitics enters the equation.
0: Yeah, talking about the global economy, quantitative easing and fiscal stimulus measures have been following uh, the financial meltdowns. If you think about 2008, 2009, but it has, you know, argued by many economists, it has failed to address the structural and systemic macroeconomic challenges, such as weak investment and uh, mounting debt vulnerabilities. Uh, what do you think should be the priorities to reverse this trend, this downward spiral?
1: I don't think monetary policy, like quantitative easing and so on, should be addressed That investment. Investment is a real problem in the economy. It is a problem. We'd like to have more investment. We'd like to have more uh, high-tech investment. But it's not something that monetary policy can do. Even fiscal policy, actually, although some types of fiscal policy will be helpful. The way to do it is to, for the government, at least for, for the government to do, is to provide a very good infrastructure, Now, technologies are moving into the digital era, you know, provide a good digital infrastructure everywhere in the country, Uh, give um, incentives like tax uh, incentives to uh, the investors, make sure that you open up your economy to the outside world without trade restrictions, encourage investment in human capital through good education, good training programs encourage collaboration don't regulate too much but make sure that privacy and other uh, personal concerns uh, are protected and and you and, and then the entrepreneurial spirit will get you there the government the way i see it is to provide a good framework within which individual initiatives could work and invest not try and manipulate too much especially through monetary policy, which should really be used to address monetary factors like inflation and debt, not uh, real investment. It's obviously not an easy task, but uh, there's been a lot of work in this. We economists work on it day and night, some of us at least, and and we do have rules of of good, uh, proper policy that will give the right incentives, and that's what we should be pursuing.
0: We have many crises at hand. Uh, For example, inflationary pressures, a food crisis for many countries in the global south that happened ever since the pandemic and uh, the situation is obviously worsened by the Russia-Ukraine conflict and now escalation of crisis between uh, Palestine and Israel is hurting global demand and creating uncertainties. What kind of Mm -hmm. policy mix do you advise at this juncture?
1: We're in a very difficult juncture actually with the the macroeconomic policy because There are different problems. To take two examples from what you just mentioned. If you look at the pandemic, then governments rightly spend money out of public funds to support the private economy because the lockdown was a very big, big negative shock on it. That was was the right thing to do. You didn't want your economy to collapse completely. Now, at the end of the pandemic, the right policy to do is to reduce those debts and reduce the inflation by following a tighter monetary policy you know increase interest rates taking money in circulation replacing with assets you know through open market operations so on and so forth that's a kind of a straightforward policy to do but then at the end of the pandemic superimpose on that the the, the ukraine situation and what happens you're faced with, uh, at least from the European point of view, the way we see it, you are faced with uh, higher prices of energy and food. There is an adjustment in relative prices that those necessities, the energy we we need to run our industry to heat our homes, the cost of that goes up, the cost of food goes up. and uh, now And that, of course, feeds into the price of goods and gives you more inflation. Now, do you respond to that through tight and monetary policy? The answer is no, because it's not a general monetary expansion that you are going to take money away from the economy. If you did that, you will create a recession. You get a recession because the cost of energy is high, and you get energy is high, and you get another recession because of tight monetary policy. What you do, unfortunately, is not very comforting for people to hear, but you, you, you grin and bear it. You, you say, There is nothing i can do energy in the near future at least is going to be more expensive we are committed to zero carbon emissions push forward in that we haven't been good at that we've been misbehaving we go to meetings and say yes of course we'll do it there will be no more carbon emissions and then we go back home and say actually it's very difficult to move as fast as they were saying let's take it more slowly no move fast and that's how you deal with it with other measures with structural measures because that's The the Ukraine war and the the prices in those materials uh, have given uh, rise to structural shifts in the economy that that are not favorable.
0: Uh, We've seen a decline in fertility rates, uh, you know, replacement Mm -hmm. rates below zero. Initially in Western Europe and North America, now uh, many middle-income countries are are suffering that. China is no exception. What structural economic shifts would be necessary to address these issues? Uh, Will we get old (laughs) before we get rich?
1: No, we're going to do it together simultaneously. We'll get all the rich. <laughs> no, in, that, in, in that respect, again, I I, I have a view that um, maybe it's beginning to get uh, wider support, especially in countries like Japan. But um, you know there's a lot of discussion that new technologies, you know, robotics, artificial intelligence is taking our jobs away, and what are we going to do? In fact, it's not taking our jobs away. It has the potential to take some jobs away, but there will be enough work for people to do. My view on that is that push ahead with that technology, even if you fear that you might lose uh, jobs, because we're not going to have as much labor to do the work. If you're cautious about adopting new technology, uh, robots, for example, to run your industry, because there will be no jobs for young people, then you're going down the wrong path there won't be many young people to take those those jobs, so let the robots do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Another aspect is that the old idea and and the tone at which you said it actually, when you said we're going to grow old before we grow rich, it it sounds as if it's the very old-fashioned idea of growing old, you know, I'm old, I cannot move, my muscles hurt, I need (laughs) a chair to on, I need someone to look after me. Old people are not like that anymore, they're active, you know? don't think, oh, I have to stop working at 60, 65 because I'm old. You know, obviously, if you are not physically able, then don't push yourself. But but most people can carry on working into their 70s. And, uh, you know, I mean, don't work 40, 50 hours a week. Combine it. You know, there are lots of pleasurable things to do in life. But uh, if work is uh, structured well and you create good jobs, pleasant jobs, where there is social relationships at work as well, which by the way, is a a commercial advertising break, if you like, is what I'm working on now in my research. You know, like, how can we ensure that the future work is good work? Uh, My research in in, in London, Uh, then then people will be more willing to carry on working into uh, older ages.
0: Recently, you also commented on artificial intelligence and said that the AI will not generate unemployment per se, but will make work more efficient. Can you elaborate?
1: Yeah, it's it's a little bit of what I've been saying now. AI is a new technology, obviously. It can do things that uh, we never thought technology could do before and it's going to do more. But the feature of AI that I'd like to emphasize is that we have a choice how to apply it. That hasn't always been the case. You know, like my other favorite technology that uh, it it changed the world was electricity. You know, when we electrified everything in the beginning of the 20th century, early on in the 20th century. With with electricity, we didn't really have much choice. We knew what was was needed to be done. Replace your sources of energy, you know, be it steam, horsepower or whatever, uh, with, with something that builds on electricity. And uh, you've done the job. With AI, it's not like that. It's not like we're saying, oh, there is this uh, technology called AI and take it on and we'll do these things for you. We have a choice. Are we using it for the benefit of of humankind? Are we using it to take away boring tasks that people do and and then what remains is the more pleasant aspect of work? Mm -hmm. Or are we using it to cheat each other or fight each other? we should get together and collaborate and apply AI in, in a beneficial uh, way for humanity because and it's not going to take away jobs. On the contrary, it's going to combine with uh, human activity uh, to give us a better future.
0: Yeah. Recently at the AI Safety Summit in the UK, 28 governments, including the UK, the US and China, have signed the uh, Bletchley Declaration that is a global commitment towards fostering a culture of AI safety. Is this what many believe to be precautionary principle at odds with the law of economics and the free market?
1: You know, let, let's be cautious moving forward. But the fact that uh, all major players in AI got together in this uh, beautiful location outside London and uh, agreed that uh, we should uh, be cautious, we should think about AI again, how we use it, how we use it collaboratively is, is uh, going back to uh what i was saying a minute ago that we have a choice how to do it and world leaders said uh, we're going to be cautious not to use it in a way uh, that can do harm the, the problem though with ai and i'm saying let's keep fingers crossed and hope for the best and hope they apply it is that we we, we don't have a way of um, monitoring exactly what's going on you know it's not you know, it's not like robots that you see them standing there, and you, and you know how many you are using. It's not like nuclear weapons, even where where the big countries know what the other what the, what the other one is doing because they can observe them. So with AI, you, we need a lot more trust that they are going to do this than um, with other technological developments. And unfortunately, currently, at least, uh, trust is a rather short supply uh, in the world. Um, if we were in a situation where there was a lot more trust between nations, I would have said, "Pledged to do a good job, let's now move forward. Uh, we're not. It's good that they committed. Let's see them carried out.
0: Talking about the Chinese economy, Professor, China has held a high-level financial meeting chaired by the Chinese president, attended by senior leadership and policymakers in China. It says China would set up a mechanism for resolving local debt risks and managing local government debt. Uh, It also has launched a bunch of measures supporting corporate financing demand uh, in the public and private sectors, you know, boosting its sluggish housing real estate sector. Um, Are these appropriate uh, and adequate ways to address China's current economic situation?
1: I think it's an adequate way of moving forward to bring everyone together and discuss, because the problem is getting rather complicated. China needs a structural change on financing and, and finances especially local authorities they, they relied a lot on uh, selling land uh, for for their financing we had the typical features of a bubble prices were going up about up. all the participants involved were benefiting so no one wanted to stop it local authorities were getting more and more money because the price of land was going up those who bought before were gaining others wanted to go in and buy and it's a typical situation of a bubble, which we've seen so many times in the housing market. A collapse was bound to come, and and, and it came. Now, the, the things that, the, that need to be done are, first of all, the housing market needs to be fixed. Without fixing the housing market, given what an enormous part of private wealth uh, it accounts for, and how important it's been uh, for local authority, authorities. If you don't fix the market to have, in this, a uh, regular working market for a very important commodity, housing services, y- you are not going to solve it, that problem and the other fi- uh, financing problems. The other one is that lo- local authorities should get it out of their uh, mode of thinking that if I need money, I'm going to sell a little bit more land, because that's going to create more uh, speculation and bubbles. They should think, How do I? what services do I need to provide, and how do I fund those services? Mm-hmm. That, I appreciate, is a lot more difficult than it is.
0: Uh, professor, your research on search and matching theory has been widely quoted in the ac- academic circles, uh, especially in labor economics, where it has to be used to describe the formation of new jobs, and uh, you've also taught in Chinese universities. So what do you make of China's younger generation? Um, How could they be better adapted to enter the job market? How should they prepare themselves for future global competition?
1: I'm very very impressed actually by the willingness of the Chinese younger generation uh, to get more education, to think about getting into entrepreneurship, starting uh, businesses. I've, I've been to many, many forums of young people in China where there is a lot of interest I can see from the way they are asking me. What, what I advise them to do is not to specialize too much at, at a young age. It's, it's not like the old days; you could do it and get away with it. You know, you become an accountant and you stay an accountant for the rest of your life, kind of thing, or a manufacturer. This is not the current situation. Learn some skills. Learn to understand data. Data is going to be is, is going to be everything in the future. You know, the ones who know how to use the massive amounts of data that we're getting at the ones that are going to succeed in whatever they want to do Uh, it obviously but uh, i don't have to teach the chinese about it the the way everyone is looking at their phones wherever they are shows that they they have quite quite a bit quite a lot of comprehension i wish occasionally they would look up
0: a little bit more because you
1: also have beautiful nature to to read more books and to
0: work out more huh (laughs)
1: that's another issue yeah learn, learn learn skills related to that Learn also how to um, work with other people, how to communicate well with other people. Communication technologies and communications are going to be important because as machinery is taking over and over more mechanized, more tasks that can be mechanized, people, highly educated, successful people, will succeed through communication with other people, providing services to other people, seeing what they want, seeing which direction to go. Because ultimately, the economy will move in the direction that it's people want. You know, if there is no demand for something, you're not going to succeed by producing
0: it. But as we've just celebrated the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative yeah, uh, amazing, proposed yeah. by for Chinese president 10 years ago, how do you see mm. the BRI um, changing the landscape of global development and globalization?
1: Well, actually 10 years ago, I was in, I was in China when uh, it was launched. I was so excited, so trying to find out I was puzzled why it was called Belt and Road, <laughs> but anyway, all that now is history. The Belt and Road Initiative actually was very good because of, um, if you like, returning all those surpluses that that China made in its uh, in its trade balances, sending it back to the world in the form of infrastructure investment. Obviously, you could never expect that absolutely everything will be successful in an investment. You know, it's not investment is a risky business. But but there are investments in um, less developed countries, countries that didn't have the funds. Their governments or big businesses there didn't have the the funds to provide good infrastructure investment. I mentioned the port of Athens, for example, that where lots of Chinese investment came in. That was part of the Belt and Road. There are investments in uh, Pakistan, from what I know, in Africa, where they were desperately in need of these investments. It, good infrastructure investment is absolutely essential if we're going to get um, the private initiative to invest more and uh, have good rates of return and succeed. And what the Belt, Belt and Road Initiative does, does in its own way is to provide that infrastructure investment. It, it, it was very, very good, <laughs> beneficial for, the, for, for many, many countries, let me put it that way. So focus on skills, learn general
0: skills. Professor Christopher Pissarides, thank you so much. Um, Hope to see you again in China and um, take care.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: That's it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our news coverage continues. Bye and take care.